All right, well, Isaiah 44. So we're going to start at verse 24. Um, but before we get into it, let me just give you a little historical context. It's, it's hard to pop in in a, a book of prophecy and not really understand what's the context of what's going on. Uh, just it gives us a little more understanding. And we want to know what exactly is God saying through the prophet Isaiah. So here in chapter 44, we continue on with Isaiah's message that he has been speaking to uh, the southern tribes of Israel. Um, and he's been telling them about what's going to happen in their future, because what's going to happen here is they're going to go into captivity, uh, and they're going to be held captive by the Babylonians for uh, about 70 years. And so Israel's... Tr- probably thinking, why is God allowing this to happen? How does this fit into God's divine plan? Well, Isaiah, in doing this, is trying to get them to wake up or or remind them of what God is doing in their life. And for those of you that have have been here for a few weeks, I want to say this. This is a, like I said, this is a continuation of the message. So you're going to hear some things that have already been said, but, but this is good for us as a church and as believers uh, it could be good and also it could be bad depending on where you are and what you do with this. And, and let me tell you why. Bad, even for the nation of, of Israel here, because like Judah, we may not respond to words that become familiar, right? We're always hearing a message and we're like, yeah, yeah, I know that. And you kind of check out and don't listen. And, and I would encourage you not to do that this morning. Don't let the familiarity of God's word you know, let, don't let that dissuade you from, from hearing it again. Because on a good note, it's also good to hear from God's Word again so that it strengthens us and it reminds us to put our hope and trust in God. And this is exactly the intent, the intent that Isaiah is giving to the people of Judah. He wants them to wake up and put their trust and hope in the Lord. And my prayer this morning is that you will be strengthened, each and every one of you out there, to trust and hope in the Lord God. So what exactly in this passage is said that is meant to strengthen Judah's trust and hope in the Lord? What what are they going to be focusing on? And that's the title of the message. They're going to be focused on God's sovereignty. So for you and me today, we need to focus on God's sovereignty because that's what gives us hope and trust in all things sorts of things. And like I said, Israel's about to go through some hard times, and Isaiah is pointing them to trust in God's uh, sovereignty. So if you don't know what sovereignty means, let me give you a few definitions of that before we get into the text. Uh, When you speak of sovereignty, you're speaking of somebody that is the supreme ruler, the sovereign of a nation. So in that sense, God is the supreme ruler, not just of a nation, as we'll see, but of the entire world. So when you think of God's sovereignty, think of that. He is the supreme uh, leader, the supreme monarch, so to speak. Another way of thinking about God's sovereignty is that God possesses absolute power or absolute ability. God has more power than we could ever imagine or think of, and he has the ability to exert that power, right? He he doesn't get that from somebody else. He is the absolute power. And thirdly and lastly, God does all things independent of counsel and interference and interference. So nobody is counseling God on how to do things. 
Nobody is giving God the strength to do something. Nobody gave God the title of sovereign. So again, as we think of God's sovereignty, those are the three things I want you to think of, that God is the same supreme ruler, that God possesses absolute power or ability, and God does all things independent of counsel and interference. So, think of that as we go through the text this morning. We're going we're gonna to take little chunks of the scripture and talk about it. And for time's sake, we won't cover each and every verse, but we'll get the gist of it. Again, the focus is God's sovereignty. So in that context, now let's start at verse 24. As the prophet Isaiah is speaking to Israel, in particular the southern tribes, of Judah. He says, Thus says the Lord your God, your Redeemer, excuse me, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb, I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone, causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of the diviners, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness, confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of his messengers, it is I who says to Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise her up, or raise up her ruins again. It is I who says to the depth of the sea, be dried up, and I will make your rivers dry. So let's stop right there as we look at this message from the Lord. And here the Lord in verses 24 through 27 is explaining or defining his sovereignty. What does it mean again that God is sovereign? And look at the titles that God gives himself because these are all going to cover his, his supreme rulership, his absolute rulership, or his independence of counsel and interference. And the first title that God gives himself before he explains to Jerusalem what he's doing, or to Judah what he's doing, he needs to remind them of who he is. And God is all these things. He says first that he is your redeemer. Again, this is illustrating God's sovereign supremacy and absoluteness. He is the one who is going to redeem the nation of Israel. He is the only one that can do that. And by extension, as you think of it, he is the only one that can redeem mankind as well. Secondly, he is your creator, he says. I am the one who formed you from the womb. Again, he is the one. He is supreme and absolute. Nobody else can do that. And I want to look at this for a, little, for a few moments here. As he says, he is the one who formed you from the womb. Think of all that takes place in the creation of a child inside of a mother's womb. God was the one involved in the creative process of a little child in the womb coming into being. He was intricately involved in putting all the cells together, all the DNA together. If you think about all that God did to create a child, He is the one who orchestrates that process and that process of us coming into existence. He is the one who puts life into the very body. He breathes his soul into each and every person. And not only that, he is the one who sustains that life from start to finish. So think of that as God is not only the, he's called creator, but think of what it means to create a human being. 
Again, just all the processes that are involved from start to finish, it is an absolute miracle that a child is born. And so God is saying, I'm the one who formed you from the womb. So not only is he the redeemer of the nation of Israel, he's also their creator. And again, by extension, he's your redeemer and he's your creator. He is the one that created each and every one of us. This is a way that he is describing his sovereignty. And let's look at the next one here. He is the creator of all things that exist. So not only is he creator of human beings, everything that exists in this world was created by him. He says in verse 1 again, he says, I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. Again, he created all things in this world and in the entire universe. Everything that we see when you look up into the sky or look out into nature, God says, I created those things. Again, showing his absolute supremacy over all things. Not only that, I like what it says. He says, by myself, and I spread it out the earth all alone, showing that God is independent. God didn't need help. God didn't need to read some blueprints to decide how to design this world or design all things that are created in it. God did it by himself without any help. Again, that shows that he is independent. And again, he doesn't seek counsel. Nobody was there going, hey, God, you missed this or he forgot to do that. He didn't have to get it inspected by anybody. He didn't have to run to city council and get approval of the plans. No, he says, I did it all by myself. I formed it all. I thought of it all. I formed it all, and I sustained it all. And so this is the sovereign God who's speaking to the nation of Judah. Again, he's the redeemer. He's the creator, and he's the creator of all things. He alone created and devised this entire process. And again, he's telling them this because they easily forget when hard times come, they forget all those things, that who God is. And so he goes on to describe his uh, sovereignty in verse 25. He talks about how he can confound the plans of the wicked. So even though there are those people who are devising plans against God or without God's counsel, Council and maybe even seek the occult, God is saying, you know what? I'm even over those people. I confound them. I make them look foolish. I cause the wise men to draw back and turn back their knowledge. Again, so God is even uh, sovereign over those things. He's, he's absolute sovereign over his servants. Look at verse 26. He says, confirming the word of his servants and performing the purpose of his messengers. So this is, God confirms his word. When God says something, when God says his servants out here in particular, Isaiah, to say something, he's saying, I'm going to perform it. I do those things. I confirm my very word in my servants. He's sovereign over that. And finally, he's sovereign over human history when he explains in verse 27 that he says to the depths of the sea, be dried up and I will make your rivers dry. He's sovereign over those things. He's sovereign over the nature of human history because he's talking about here, if you think about it, what seas did God intimately involve himself in in the relation to the nation of Israel? In the Red Sea, remember, he parted the Red Sea for the nation of Israel. He parted the Jordan River for the nation of Israel. And this, is, this might be what Isaiah is referring to here, is that God dries up that. God is not only sovereign over human history, he's sovereign over the natural elements over all things. 
This is how big God is, he's telling Israel. And again, each and every one of us need to remember that in our own lives. This is how big God is. God is so big that we can't even imagine. Have you ever tried to imagine how big the universe is? Like what is outside the universe that God created? Does it ever end? Because everything we see has an ending, right? A beginning and an ending. And then you spend some time trying to think of the expansiveness of the universe that God created. It just blows your mind. You get, you know, I start to get scared. I'm like, ooh, it's scary to think of such things. Or how, or eternity, or what was going on before we got here? God was sovereign even all over all those things. Again, just trying to describe the enormity and the sovereignty of God. And so God is telling the nation of Judah all these things before he explains what's going to happen. So Isaiah said, hey, this is who God is, guys. Okay, do you, We have it now because this is what God is going to do in his sovereign plan. And this is what he says to them, starting in verse 28. Let's read. We're going to read through to 45, verse 8, because this is God's plan of what he's going to do. He says, it is I who says to Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Now Cyrus is a king of Persia, and he's not even probably born yet at the time that this is recorded. So he's predicting the future. He's telling Israel what's going to happen in the future. He says, it is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built and the temple, your foundation will be laid. Thus says the Lord uh, to Cyrus, his anointed. So God's letting them in on kind of like a behind the scenes. So he, obviously God doesn't particularly speak to Cyrus but Isaiah is saying, this is what God is going to say to Cyrus, and you guys get to see what happens before it unfolds. And so he says, thus the Lord says to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him, to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of the bronze or the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasure of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places in order that you may know that I, it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name for the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one. I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor. Though you have not known me, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising of, to the setting of the sun, there is no one beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Drip down, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up and salvation bear fruit, and the righteousness spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. So here God lays out his plan that he's going to do for his people. And so let's look at this here, uh, some of the specifics here. So the Lord's saying, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to use a man named Cyrus, who is a foreign ruler. And he hasn't even been born yet. And he's going to deliver you when you guys go into captivity. Now think of this for a moment. If you know the book of Isaiah, 
How many times was Israel going to foreign countries asking for help? Quite a lot. And so they were getting chastised for it all the time by God. And God now is saying, here, guess what? I'm going to use a foreign ruler to deliver you. All those times you guys tried to get a foreign ruler to deliver you, no, I'm going to get a foreign ruler to deliver you because it's when God's plan is enacted, that's when it comes to pass. And so this might have been blowing Israel's mind. They might be thinking, Isaiah, you always tell us not to go get foreign help, and here you're telling us that God is going to get foreign help. God is saying this is his plan, and we'll talk a little bit in a moment why he's going to do this. So he's going to get a foreign ruler who's not even born yet. He's going to get a foreign ruler and lead him by the right hand, Scripture says, and he's going to defeat all the world powers that exist at the time in order to bring Israel back to the land. And he's going to send the nation of Israel back to their homeland, which is, isn't what foreign rulers usually do. Usually they subject them, bring them into captivity. But God says, no, I'm going to get this foreign ruler. He's going to deliver you, and he's going to send you back to his land. For what purpose? Why would God do this? Well, look at verse 3 of chapter 45. and verses 3 through 6, he gives us three reasons why he's going to do this. Again, nothing happens without purpose in this life. God always has a purpose, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. So his purpose here in verse 3 says, and, and I will give you the treasures. He's speaking to Cyrus, remember, I, or about Cyrus. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hidden wealth of, of the secret place. Why? In order that you may know that it is I, the Lord God of Israel, who calls you by your name. He wants Cyrus to know that God is sovereign. I'm the one doing it. Not you, Cyrus. I called you. I brought you out. I defeated all the lands before you. It is I who does this. A matter of fact, in the book of Ezra, you could turn there with me if you like. Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is acknowledged by Cyrus. Ezra. Look at, let's read a few verses here in the book of Ezra. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, you see Jeremiah the prophet also prophesied of Israel's captivity, and that's what that's meaning here. Uh, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in the writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem." So here Cyrus is acknowledging that it is God who called him to do this. He says, hey, those of you in the kingdom of Babylon, or, or his kingdom now, that are Israelites, go back to your land and build the house of God. And so this is what God is prophesying here through Isaiah, and it comes to pass as recorded in the book of Ezra. So that's one reason why God does this. God wants Cyrus to know that he is sovereign. Secondly, look at verse 4. He says, For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. 
and have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. He's also doing this as a witness for his own people. God said this was going to happen. Israel sees it happen, and it's a reminder to them of who God is in their life. He's sovereign. So the purpose of God doing this so far is one that Cyrus would know the Lord is sovereign, and secondly, that Judah would know the Lord is sovereign. And thirdly and lastly, if you look at verse, uh, I think it's in verse 6. Yeah, drop down to verse 6. As he says, he's doing, he says that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. God also does these things so that all men will know that the Lord is sovereign. Now, it doesn't mean they're all going to believe God and follow God, but they're going to know that this is God doing it. And so that gives us the purpose for God's divine sovereign plan. So that Cyrus will know that he is Lord, so that Israel will know that he is Lord, and that all men will know that the Lord is sovereign. So with that being said, you would think, hey, if everybody knows that it's the Lord, then why don't they follow him? Or will they all follow him? Is all of Israel going to know that this is what God has done? They're going to say, okay, we accept it. Well, obviously, Isaiah knows that's not true, and he gives them a warning. If you look at verses 10, or excuse me, look, look at verses 9 and 10 now. Because this is the warning to those who would fight against God's sovereign plan. He says this, Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. So it's a fighting. Not just a, as you'll see, it's not just that you ask God a question. No, you're fighting God. You're quarreling. And so he says, Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthenware vessel among the vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, What are you doing? Or, to, or the thing you are making, he has no hands. Woe to him who says to a father, What are you begetting? Or to a woman, To what are you giving birth? So what is going on here? Again, this is... Uh, Isaiah warning those who would challenge God or fight against God. That word woe is what is a funeral cry. So he's crying out, signifying the futility and the ultimate end of those who fight against God. Those of you that fight against God, he's saying, woe to you. Like there's going to be a funeral for you because you're not going to win. Because if God is this sovereign God and he said all these things were going to happen, they are going to happen and fighting against him is useless. Right? So this is, again, just it looks like a question when you read it, right? Like, hey, what are you doing? That's, that's not what it is. It's that looking at somebody going, what are you doing? If you've been a parent, you might have told your child that before, right? You, you knew what they were doing. You're like, it was more than just a question, right? And this is the exact same thing that's going on here. It's more than just a question. It's a direct challenge. It's an attack on the sovereign power and process of God. The challenger is not asking, right? It says he is saying to God, what are you doing? It's questioning God in that, with that tone. Like, do you, or almost like, do you even know what you're doing, Lord? That's the kind of challenge that he's describing here. Again, it's not asking it's saying to God, what are you doing? And that's important for us to remember. Because again, those people that quarrel against God, again, Isaiah says, woe to them. Right? And then he gives you a few examples of that. He's like, 
It's like the clay saying to the potter, what are you doing? The clay can't do that. The potter has complete sovereignty over the clay. He's just showing the ridiculousness of that as well. So let's move on to the final verses here in verses 11 through 13. In verses 9 through 10, you see that the sovereignty of God is challenged. Instead, he's saying the sovereignty of God should be accepted in verses 11 through 13, and that's how he concludes this. He says, thus says the Lord, look at verse 11, thus thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and His Maker. Ask me about the things to come concerning my sons. So here he says, ask me. It's not saying to the Lord, it's ask me. So he's telling the people to ask me about the things that are coming concerning the sons. And you shall commit to me the work of my hands. So in this section right here, he's saying, don't fight with me. He said, ask me about what's happening. It's okay to ask God about what he is doing in a prayerful way that you don't understand, asking for further explanation about things. The other person is not asking for an explanation in verses 9. He's telling God or chastising God with his question. And so he says, Ask me about the things to come concerning my sons, and you shall commit to me the works of my hands. He's trusting God. He's committing God's works to his. He's letting God do what God does. Here, Lord, I'm not going to take this out of your hands and try to do it myself. I'm committing it to your hands and let God do the work. And then God closes with reminding them in verses 12 through 13 who he is, because it is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands and I ordained all the hosts. I have aroused him in righteousness. This is speaking of Cyrus. And I will make all his ways smooth. He will build my city and will let my exiles go free without any payment or reward, says the Lord of hosts. So this is God's sovereign plan for the nation of Israel. And again, it's not something that they would expect. And he's just telling them, hey, even though you don't expect it and you don't understand it, don't fight against it, but accept it. And so the application, I hope, is obvious for each and every one of us. How do you respond to the sovereignty of God, because the sovereignty of God that we just went through is the same God that saved us today. He, too, is our Redeemer and our Maker. He's the one that formed this entire world and created all things that exist. So guess what? The sovereign Lord who executed this plan for the nation of Israel, He's executing His plan in our world today And he's executing his plan in our individual lives as well. Now, if you think about that for a minute, just like Israel did, they didn't understand all that God was doing, and sometimes they didn't even like it. And if you think about the world today, maybe there's things going on in our world today that you don't understand, or in your own life that you don't understand, and even in this world in general that you don't understand and don't like. And sometimes you may even seem, this doesn't seem like God is involved. This doesn't seem that this would be God's plan. How do you respond to that? Well, let's look at some of that. Again, to us this may seem good or bad, but before I get into the way that we respond, let's go back to that application of how, uh, 
God has allowed these things to happen in this world today and even the things in your life, they have a purpose. They're not purposeless. And let me give you four, four examples or four things that we can infer because of God's sovereignty about the things going on in our world today and maybe even in your life. What is the purpose? And maybe you think this, why did God allow this to happen? What purpose does this serve in my life? And I'm going to give you just four things to think about as you think about the purpose of things happening in your own life. Number one is this. God does these things, or he can use these things, to draw you to himself. Right? God does things for a purpose, and one of those reasons is maybe he's doing this for you in particular to draw you to himself. Maybe you don't know the Lord at this moment. Maybe you don't, he's not your sovereign God, and the things that are going on in your life He's using to draw you to himself. That could be one reason. The second reason could be this. For those of you that are the Lord's children, who believe that he is your sovereign God, he may be doing what he's doing in your life at this moment to draw you back to him. This is a lot of what's going on with the nation of Israel. A lot of them keep falling away from the Lord and going to idols, and that God acts upon their life so that they would come back to him. And so maybe that's something to think about when you're wondering what's going on in your life. God can be using it to draw you to himself if you're not his. And if you are his, maybe sometimes he does it to draw you back because you've started to drift away a little bit. A third reason that God may be allowing something to happen in your life is that he is using this to conform you into his image. Scripture tells us that, that he's doing things in our life to conform us into his image, the image of his only son, Jesus Christ. So maybe that hard time in your life, or even a good time in your life, something you don't understand, God can be allowing this to happen in your life because he's trying to conform you into the image of his son. So that's another reason. The fourth one is probably one that none of us will like because we always want answers. But you know what? Sometimes God does some things for reasons he cannot explain to us, for whatever reason. And so maybe there's things in our lives that God, that's what he's saying. I can't tell you right now because you would not even understand it. I mean, think of that. If God told you something about your future and, and you, you're not there yet, I don't, I don't even get that. And so maybe sometimes God doesn't give us the purpose for why he's doing something. So when that happens, what are we supposed to do? For all these purposes, if, if one of these purposes, and this is probably not an exhaustive list, but if it's one of these purposes that God is using in your life, how should we respond to it? Well, we have a few ways that we can respond. Number one, we can fight against it, just like they did in, in verse 9 of Isaiah 45, right? You can fight against God with what's happening in your life. You can quarrel with God. You can yell at God and say, what are you doing? Do you know what you're doing? Are you even there? Do you even exist? And question God's sovereignty. This is the response of some people. And woe to them, just like Isaiah told Israel, woe to you when you quarrel with your maker. Because guess what? If Since God is sovereign... Since God does what he pleases and will accomplish it, accomplish it, your fighting will ultimately result in your losing the battle to God. Maybe not now, 
But the day that you stand before God and you have fought against his will and his purposes all your life, you will face ultimate judgment from God because all you did was quarrel with him. And so that's one response that we can have is we could fight against God, against his purposes. The better ones would be to do the following. One way to respond is that you pray for understanding. Well, you pray for understanding, right? Remember in verse 10 or verse 11, he said, ask me about the things to come concerning my sons. God would rather have us, hey, if there's something going on in your life that you don't like or you don't understand, ask God for understanding. And guess what? Sometimes God will give it to us. He'll tell us about it or we'll get insight into what's going on in our life. We'll gain an understanding about it. But then there are some times that he won't, right? Sometimes he will say, my grace is sufficient. Or he'll say, trust me, which is the next point. Because if you don't get that answer, what's the other response that we can do? Is that we trust the Lord, right? Just like he said in verse 11, and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. Sometimes we're not going to understand what God's doing. We might not even like it, but we're going to trust the Lord since he's sovereign to do the best thing for us, right? God works all things together for those who are called to him and who love him, are called according to his purpose and love him. So no matter what's going on in your life, if you're his child, he promises to work all things together for good. You have to trust him, even if you don't understand. Trust the Lord. Again, the Lord's sovereign. He made the entire universe. He formed each and every one of us. He moves forward with his own plans and his own way. Therefore, he can do those things that we're praying for. He will work things out in our lives just like he promises to do for the nation of Israel. So just in closing, each and every one of us needs to decide what we're going to do with that. Are we going to fight against it? Are we going to pray for understanding? And are we going to trust God in the midst of all that is going on in our world and our individual lives? And I pray that each and every one of us, for each and every one of us, it will be the latter. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray this morning that each and every one of us would be encouraged and reminded of your sovereignty. And we would be encouraged and reminded to trust in that. Lord, I know that each and every one of us has different things going on in our lives. We struggle and are just going through even hard things, things that we don't understand, things that could be life-threatening, things that are painful, things that cause us to suffer and, and stay awake at night and worry. But Lord God, since you are sovereign and we are your children, we know that you work all things together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. So we pray this morning for understanding in what you are doing in our lives. And we pray that we would trust you with our life as you work out your purposes in them. And Lord God, I also pray for anybody in this room this morning who does not yet know you are sovereign in an intimate way, that this morning, Lord God, that they might come to know that they might come to know that and trust you as their sovereign Lord, that they might call you their redeemer and their maker. We pray that this morning, Lord, and we thank you once again for your word 
And thank you for just a, a little bit better understanding of your sovereignty. And may we trust you all the days of our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.